3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. 30 years ago, white Los Angeles police officers savagely beat Rodney Glenn King, a young black man who had led them on a high-speed chase through the city. Nearby, a man in an apartment complex grabbed his brand new home video camera and zoomed in on the scene, which was illuminated by police choppers. That tape once broadcast bent history in LA and across California and the nation. Today, with the help of Slate slow burn and its host this season, Joel Anderson, we'll look back at early 90s California, police brutality, and the stories you don't know about the days that left California stunned and smoldering. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. In episode four of this season's Slow Burn, a Slate podcast, we learned that the man we all know is Rodney King, a name that's carved into history, was known to his friends and family by his middle name, Glenn. Listening to the series, I found this small but important detail to be revelatory. We don't know this man at all, despite how many things he came to symbolize to different people, despite his fame, despite all that his encounter with police catalyzed that spring in Los Angeles. And to me, that's the power of this season of Slow Burn, hosted by our guest, Joel Anderson. Like, you think you know the story of Rodney Glenn King, of that videotape, of Daryl Gates, of the LA riots. And yet there's so much more that Anderson's approach reveals about what people misunderstood at the time, what we misunderstand now, and what may remain unknowable. Thank you so much for joining us today, Joel.
2: Hey, thanks for having me, Alexis.
3: It's my pleasure. So... I wanna go back to 1992, but not not to Los Angeles. I wanna go back to 1992 in Houston when you were a Mm -hmm. kid. And you are seeing this Rodney King tape on television like everybody else in America. What what was going through your mind and what were you thinking?
2: Um, It was really confusing to me um, because I think growing up, you're under sort of this illusion that the police are people that are there to help you um, that, you know, that when you have trouble, you call a police person. Um, if somebody's breaking into your house, you call a police person. So I don't think at that point I had been exposed to the idea that police were people that could potentially hurt you. Um, even though at that age, I was getting, I think I mean, was closing in on the age of 13, I just started listening to hip hop and my favorite artists were people that did not enjoy the police. uh, did not have good relationships with the police. You knew public enemy. Yeah. Yeah. I knew public enemy. I knew NWA and you know, I was, my thought was, okay, I understand that they have a relationship, you know, with it. They don't like the police, but maybe they were also doing stuff that drew the attention of the police. And so I was like, you know, you know, the police will only mess with you if you're doing something wrong. That was, you know, sort of the way I thought about it um, at the very tender, naive age of 13. Yeah. So
3: coming forward to today, that that obviously, like I mean, like me at the time as a as a ten year old, um, I it really stuck with me. You know that tape. I feel like I've seen it both in my mind and on a screen. You know a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Um, why why do this project now? Obviously, you got you know you have a, a light peg of the thirty year anniversary. But mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. what was it, like the the thematic or the resonances that you were feeling with our time that made you want to go back to? at this moment?
2: Well, well to be honest, um, I, it wasn't quite that neat. Um, I, you know, I, so I was the host of season three of Slow Burn, which was about the, the lives and deaths of Biggie and Tupac. And in episode two of season three, we covered how law enforcement all around the country, but particularly in L.A. and especially in South Central L.A., had sort of ramped up uh, these aggressive policing tactics against Black and brown communities. And, you know, as we're going through this and, you know, t- you know f- figure it out, oh, that's what f the police comes from. You know, that's sort of the hypothesis of that particular genre. And uh, I just got really interested in that era of L.A., uh, particularly you know, the music, like I just mentioned, Ice Cube, N.W.A., Public uh, Public Enemy all these guys the ghetto boys uh and the music that they were making and I was like I would really like to go back and investigate that time And so I had a couple years to stew on it and then you know of course last year uh you know our supposed great racial reckoning after uh, Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and it then it just seemed so much more poignant and um you know in in of this moment so it, did, it at that point then it it made a lot more sense to uh take t- t- tackle this project yeah
3: So what did you, I mean, slow burn format for people who aren't familiar with it, right? You take a historical event, you go back like Watergate and and then you get to like really blow it out. You get to do it over like many hours. Um, So what did you hope to reveal using that kind of slow-mo version of the story that other retrospectives couldn't deliver?
2: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one thing about it is that you, you last year, particularly the conversation around police reform um, was really sort of frustrating to me because I was like, oh, we've been talking about this stuff since I was a teenager. And the source of a lot of this was what happened in the wake of the Rodney King beating. And so I was just like, okay, well, this this really seems to be of the moment. And um, I really, you know, that was really the, the biggest piece of it. I was like, you know, we have these conversations over and over again about what can we do about policing? How can we better the relationships between police and marginalized communities? Um, what can people in those communities do to protect themselves from police? And I was like, you know what? We haven't figured that out. Uh, maybe there's not a way to figure it out, but um, these conversations aren't new. And mm-hmm. I, that seemed like, you know, very fertile fertile ground to uh, till there.
3: Yeah. Well, let's get into the tape itself, which is where you start the, the series. There's a guy named George Holliday, who's, uh. pl- uh, yeah, who's a plumber, and mm-hmm. he is in an apartment building across the street um, from where Rodney King ends up being stopped by police and, and, and beaten. Um, and we're just going to listen in to
2: a little bit of, of your description of the tape. Holiday's tape starts with King trying to get off the ground. He's been tased twice at this point. Suddenly King is clubbed near the shoulder with a baton. King falls on his face. On the tape, you can see several officers standing around, watching the arrest escalate. You can also hear shouting, but it's hard to make out what's being said. For the next 10 seconds, the video is out of focus. When the camera settles, it's just King and four LAPD officers in the glow of the spotlight. King is on all fours. As he stumbles, the officers take turns beating him with batons and kicking him with their boots. It's one blow after another for the next minute, nearly one per second. King tries to shield himself, but there are too many officers, too many clubs, too many boots.
3: You know joe i was thinking about you as i was listening to the podcast how hard it must have been to
2: re-watch this yeah. in order to be able to describe it yeah it's i think the one thing about it is that at that age i think i was more fascinated by the riot piece of the story like in my mind i only you know i would only go back to the riots part right or the mm-hmm. unrest whatever you know whatever the the terminology is that we use today right Um, But yeah, going back and looking at the video, uh, I was just struck by how brutal it looked. Usually when we see these videos today, because now obviously this is a thing, I mean, this is sort of the, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the forerunner of this particular genre of video, Um, people get killed. Like it happens sort of instantaneously. I guess that was sort of what made the George Floyd thing so perverse. Mm -hmm. But this is just looking at somebody, you know, getting his ass kicked, you know, for for 60, 60 seconds. And it was, yeah, it was really difficult to look at to imagine somebody trying to hold up uh, under that sort of punishment, under that brutality. Uh, a, a lot of people in, you know, you know, I talked with a lot of people that knew Rodney King and were familiar with the injuries he took. And they're like, you know, if Rodney King wasn't six foot three, 225 pounds. Um, he might've died. A lot of people would have died.
3: You know, um, the the other thing that's revealed early on in, in the podcast is how, I, I mean, it seems strange to say lucky, but just how contingent this particular moment of history is, right? Tell us, tell us about your interview with the man who, who took the videotape and sort of, it seems sort of unlikely, practically, that right. we, we have any tape of
2: this at all. Yeah, no, it's so random. I mean, just think, first of all, George Holiday, Argentine immigrant, uh, just moves to that area with his wife not too long before this. He gets the camera as a sort of a Valentine's Day gift um, for him and his wife. There's, you know they sort of go in together. They're not very familiar with it. They'd only used it once uh, before, and that was to shoot some footage of Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, coming out of a, a bar across the street like they were filming Terminator 2 across the street from their apartment. So they'd only used it once. And so you have you know, they have to be there. George Holiday has to have a camera, which is not something that was very common in 1991 to have a camera like that. And then to have the curiosity to go outside on his balcony and say, hey, what is that? Well, I might as well take footage of it. Like that's such a common thing now. That's something, you know, so many people all over the world um, yeah, boom, will just pull pick out their the phone, phone up and start, pull up. Yeah, I'm gonna start taking a video of this, right? Like we just take it for granted that that's something you can do now. But back then that was sort of a, a, an, an incredible act to pull out a camera uh, and especially something that was as cumbersome as that was uh, and, and film it. And so, yeah, um, it could have, you know, it could have easily happened where George Holiday didn't hear the sirens or the helicopters outside. Uh, but he slept through it because he had to get up early the next morning um, that maybe he, you know, screwed up trying to use the camera because he, he was not that familiar with it. Um yeah, anything could have happened. His wife could have told him to come back to bed, right? Um, yeah. But just that curiosity, just all that, all these things sort of come come together. This sort of collision of uh, of, of you know, of things that, that made it all just happen. It's, it's it's actually sort of remarkable that we that we ever knew anything about this in the first place.
3: And maybe let's listen into just a little bit of of George talking about why he may have gone out there.
2: George Holiday saw all of this in his camera. His wife, Maria, joined him on the balcony.
0: We're asking each other, wow, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? You got to remember that I come from a different culture, you know, growing up in Argentina. You know, I've seen a couple of uh, military coups take over the government. I've seen people uh, abducted by military personnel right in front of me. Cars pull up, guys jump out, grab somebody, throw them in the car, and the car takes off and nobody asks anything, nobody says anything.
3: We're talking about the police beating of Rodney King and the subsequent L.A. riots with Joel Anderson, host of this season's Slate Slow Burn podcast. What are your first memories of seeing that George Holiday tape of Rodney King being beaten by police? We want to hear from you. Give us a call now. 866-733-6786 that's 866-733-6786 you can get in touch Twitter, Instagram, Facebook just find us KQED Forum or you can email your memories to forum at kqed.org I'm Alexis Madrigal stay tuned for more on this after the break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the Rodney King beating and the subsequent civil unrest in Los Angeles with Joel Anderson, host of this season of Slate Slow Burn podcast. Before the break, we were talking about sort of just the the strangeness of the circumstances under which this tape came to exist, the tape of, of Rodney King. And Joel, I wanted to ask you, you know, How did the media come to present this, right? It's not like nowadays you could get that video, you could post it on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and and the world would know what had happened. It wasn't like that back then, right? You had to kind of go through the broadcast infrastructure.
2: Yeah, everything was new in in a manner of speaking, right? Um, So you have this amateur video technology and um, they're not, you know, TV stations—they had stringers or freelancers, uh, just probably known by layman at the time, and you know, so they were—they worked with you know some semi-professional people that worked with cameras or whatever. And so when George Holiday presents this tape um, to KTLA, uh, the you know one of the, the big TV stations down there in, in, in Los Angeles, they're like, "Well, all right, well let's see, you know, we'll we'll take a look and see what goes on," and then they're just blown away because. Again, nobody, you know, at that time, it's really hard to emphasize. Very few people had ever seen a tape like that. Now, I'm sure that there have been people around the world that were had seen instances of police brutality or seen some cops beat somebody up before, but to catch it on tape like that was just groundbreaking stuff. And so, uh, KTLA is shocked. And uh, what should we do with this? Uh, we don't know who this person is. Yeah, we they don't didn't know who was, who was on, on the tape. Yeah, that's so. Yeah, before they
3: broadcast it, right? They just they literally put it on the air. Right before they knew that it was Rodney King,
2: absolutely, absolutely. By broadcasting it, they were able to start piecing things together. But before that, they're just like, "Well, we just have this shocking tape. Let's throw it out there uh, at you know in the second block of uh, the ten o'clock news uh, tonight." And 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 so, yeah, from there it takes off. And at that time, KTLA was one of the stations that had sort of a sh- uh, you know a sharing agreement with CNN and this sounds crazy to say at the time but cnn was like a fairly new concept then it you know right. in, in 1991 it gained popularity through the first gulf war so this the idea of 24 7 news was just very new it was in its infancy at the time and so yeah i mean they look at that tape cnn they say whoa that looks interesting we should run this o- overnight and you know by the by the next morning it had just taken off and every media outlet at that point was on the story. But yeah, that, that just was not a lot of, insti- there, wasn't, there wasn't a lot of institutional knowledge about how to handle something like that at the time.
3: Yeah. You know, you, you have an amazing interview with Hector Tobar, who's working at the Los Angeles Times at that time, and he's basically assigned, he's young, right, he's in his 20s, mm-hmm. and he's basically assigned to write the first draft of history here. Let's, let's listen to him talking about this. Sure. You know, the biggest, the most important thing when you write that story is the lead. You know, how am I going to write the lead to the story? And so I started with something like the brutal beating of a black man
2: by a group of mostly white police officers set off a national furor. Tobar was only saying what was obvious from the video. The man on the ground was black. The men hitting him were not. But he was saying it in the first sentence, putting it at the center of the paper's account. After Tobar submitted his draft, the city editor suggested a few changes. And he says, Hector, I I changed your lead. And he had taken out all references to
3: race in my lead. Oh, man. So interesting, Joel. And, you know, what's really interesting is Hector Tobar's reflection on this is we missed the story because we didn't have race in the lead.
2: Yeah, um, he was very upset by that and is still upset by it 30 years later Um, But I will say, without revealing too much of what comes later in the season, um, that the idea of race is one of the focal points uh, in this case, in this story. It comes up over and over again, um, particularly during the trial, like whether or not to put race and racism at the center of this story or to downplay it. And there's a debate about that throughout from the moment that people start seeing that tape. Can we be sure that these people had racist motivations? You know, would this have happened if this was a white motorist? So on and so forth. So, um, you know, the, the the fight that Hector had with his city editor and maybe I shouldn't call it a fight because, I mean, he just, he, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to overrule your city editor. Right. Um, but it, I mean, that was a conversation that didn't just happen in the L.A. Times newsroom. It happened all over the country in every form, you know, in every medium, every form. So, um, yeah, that's just the thing that, you know, they were they were ahead of that. They had they they were at the head of that argument. um, And as you see, um, race was downplayed. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in
3: our first caller, uh, Daniel from San Francisco. Welcome to the show.
2: Hey, guys, how you doing?
4: Good, good. Hey, Dan. So. I got a little connection to that in that uh, my first production job, I worked in film and TV, and the very first one, I got the call while I was working at a restaurant. Um, Hey, you got a production job. Okay, what is it? Yay. It's the riots. (laughs) Check out the TV. So we drove around for three days um, shooting everything, and there were huge racial tensions at the time, and a lot of complaints about officers' behavior just had never gotten through. And this was the first time that people saw it, on video and thought, okay, there's definitely going to be justice, and then there wasn't, <laughs> and there was a huge tension between the African American community and the Asian community, and so they just started tearing each other's neighborhoods up. As soon as they started marching up a little closer to Beverly Hills, that's when they called curfew. National Guard came in. There was a tank in the middle of the hood <laughs> that we saw. I saw Madonna's bra gets from Frederick the Hollywood. You know all the looting and everything, and I, you know I'm sure you guys are doing this story because that kind of behavior has continued over the years. Of course it was racial. In fact, they had to bring in a special unit to retrain a lot of the police. And over the years, they have gotten a lot better in L.A. and, you know, everywhere. They've, I'm sure they've been feeling the backlash. But it was, it was absolutely racial. The community was absolutely justified in their upset. It was a shame that, you know, they basically destroyed their own neighborhoods you know, doing that because um, it you know, didn't do anything but really tear up the neighborhood.
3: But, but Daniel um let's yeah. listen in. We actually have a thank you so much for uh sharing your experience. We we um actually have a cut of Johnny Kelly who grew up in the neighborhood uh with Rodney King and kind of can describe the way he felt he felt like a lot of people in the neighborhood were feeling. Let's listen in.
2: And then when you found out it was Rodney like what did you think about it?
4: When I found out it was Rodney it it, it set me on fire. We were thinking of ways of getting back at the police. You know, that's how bad it was when I, you know, when I found out it was him. We was actually, kids on a suicide mission wanted to kill police. That's how bad it was. Yeah. And a lot of people felt that the same way that grew up in the neighborhood I grew up in when they found out it was him, you know. But during that time, yes, it was all about revenge, about killing cops. It didn't matter who you was around, who you was talking to, everybody felt the same way.
3: With Johnny Kelly, friend of Rodney King's, children, you know, when you start to look into, you know, this kind of long fuse that gets set by the, by the video's appearance, you know, and you people are beginning to get upset uh, from from the very first moment. Um, what were the other factors that you kind of identified that were sort of building towards that anger within South Central LA?
2: Well, so yeah, I think one thing that's, that that I kind of had to come to grips with as I'm you know, reviewing this story, you know, 30 years later um, and the Rodney King thing initially didn't have anything to do with South Central L.A. or like black communities, you know what I mean? Like it happens in San Fernando Valley. A suburban area north of LA. I mean, Alexis, you know where San Fernando Valley is, yeah. right? Uh, Lakeview Terrace, right? So that's not south. That's not South Central, but South Central is just where you know there's a. At the time in the in the late 80s, early 90s, you know there's a lot of black people that lived in that part of town at the time, and so what really lit the fuse in South Central um, was, of course what was going on because they saw in what happened to Rodney King as a reflection of what had been going on in their own communities going all the way back decades. I mean, you know, the LAPD had just sort of ruled with impunity in their neighborhoods. And that was one of the reasons it set off the 1965 Watts riots. But uh, you know, one thing that really surprised me was how much the shooting of Latasha Harlins um, really inflamed tensions in that area in particular, because Latasha Harlins 15-year-old Black girl who goes into a um, convenience store and gets shot by uh, a shopkeeper. This is, two, you know, little little less than two weeks after the Rodney King beating. And so people there really, that, that shooting in particular, really resonated with the people in that community. And that was you know, one of the, I think, one of the underrated factors in what eventually happened a year later. Yeah.
3: Uh, listener Michael uh, wrote in to share this memory. You know, I grew up in L.A. and went to elementary school at a mostly white school. Me and most of the other black kids were bused in from South Central. I don't have a salient memory of the video, but I do remember black kids quickly picking up the use of Rodney King as a verb describing a group beating.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, I gotta say, man. You know, the, writing and 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 talking about people about Rodney King was sort of revelatory because that's exactly my memory of it that rodney king was just sort of synonymous with beating you know like he was using in rap lines and punch lines you know for the next few years um he was a joke he was a guy that got his you know ass kicked by the police um so uh you know um uh, so yeah, and who we that's, know that's was also
3: yeah undergoing yeah i mean he he had been horribly injured uh both his his brain his body Um, And he was going through just, you know, this experience now of like, I mean, it it was kind of a version of going viral, which has its own kind of repercussions as your life gets put under this kind of microscope.
2: Yeah, he was treated more as I would say more of an object than as a human, you know, Uh, that people just sort of forgot that there was a person at the center of that video that was taking all these blows and had to live with the aftermath of it, not just mm. the physical pain, but the mental and psychological pain of getting beaten like that. You know, yeah. um, the, the one of the, the prosecutor um, uh, in, in the criminal trial that followed, he said, you know, in retrospect, he said, I think that Rodney King had PTSD that mm-hmm. um, that he just never really recovered from it and never, never got it treated. But that, I mean, that's something that we didn't really talk about at the time, um, yeah. it, it's, at least as my recollection.
3: We're talking about the police beating of Rodney King and the subsequent L.A. riots with Joel Anderson, host of this season of Slate Slow Burn podcast. We want to know your memories of what happened in L.A. Has your perspective changed on that unrest since 1992? And what's an element of what happened to Rodney King that you've wanted to understand better? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, I want to talk, we, we've sort of briefly mentioned um, uh, Latasha Harlan's. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about the Korean black tensions in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the end of this story is during there 2,200 Korean-owned businesses looted, completely destroyed, or damaged. Yeah. what you know, Latasha Harlan's, the person who killed her, was a Korean woman. Mm-hmm. What is what's going on in L.A. during this time that's sort of building to this explosion that destroys so many uh,
2: Korean-owned businesses? Sure. So, I mean, I I mean, not to be too academic here, because I don't want to pretend like I've been studying this my entire life. But I mean, I think you got to go back, starting with the 1965 Immigration Act, which sort of opens up a path for entry into this country from you know hundreds of thousands of Koreans, right? And and so, where did they land? They end up in Los Angeles, you know, which is sort of the you know outside of Korea, it has the largest population of Korean Americans, uh, particularly in the 1980s and, and 90s, and so. They're moving in and they're building their communities. And in the aftermath of the 1965 watch riots, when, you know, neighborhoods were destroyed, burnt to a crisp, uh, a lot of the shopkeepers of that generation moved out. The Korean the Korean immigrants saw, hey, that's a great business opportunity. and it's a way to get a job and to have your own business and particularly come into a new country where, they, you know, English wasn't necessarily a first language or their professional qualifications that they had there don't necessarily translate here. They don't get the same opportunities. And so those convenience stores are a way to, you know, control their own destiny, their own economic destiny. And those opportunities, they can, you know, a little bit cheaper stores you can buy in these, you know, black, brown, impoverished communities like South Central LA. And, and so the, the woman, Sunjadu, who uh, was working at the store that Latasha Harlins came into that day, like that was her thing. Like she had gone to school, but moved here, was a housewife, got here and it was not enough money. So they had to open up a store. And then eventually they're like, you know what? She's not going to be she's going to have to start working behind the counter. Um, mm-hmm. And it's and, and just like that's, you know, service work is not for everybody, man. You know what I mean? And like there's a lot of reasons for that. But also, I mean, again, there was a lot of suspicion around the people that they were their clientele. Um, you know, there's a lot of cultural uh, differences that people may have not been able to understand. I don't want to, you know, make an excuse for do, but there were things that like she just didn't, you know, it's not like she was familiar with the populace of South Central L.A. Like it was very uncommon for her to even work there. And so when you have somebody come in and you're already sort of suspicious of, who they are, where you are, um, you know the security of that neighborhood, which was, you know, that at that time too was going through, you know, a sort of crime wave on its own, and there was a lot of gang violence in South Central in the late '80s and early '90s, and so it just kind of all these. All these things sort of built on themselves and led up to that confrontation. But it was it was more of an example of a larger problem rather than like the first instance of that ever happening. Right,
3: and there had been some Korean shop owners who'd been killed. There'd been there'd been different things that had gone on, and and there were also sure. people in LA trying to, to to cool tensions or to create some sort of you know um, communication lines between the black and Korean communities, including uh, one known as the Black Korean Alliance. But as we're gonna hear uh, in this next cut, uh, Danny Bakewell um, was a black activist and businessman there uh, in Los Angeles, and he didn't actually think that the Black Korean Alliance was
5: working. In my judgment, it was a hollow attempt to do something that really wasn't beneficial for black people because it asked us to go into an alliance with Koreans But the alliance was all based on helping them to do business better in the Black community. What about an alliance that helps us to open up businesses in the Korean community? But never a conversation. And that's always the problem that we have.
2: It seemed the tension in South Central wasn't going to get better anytime soon. I I knew it was a ticking time bomb. Now it's getting worse and worse
3: the voice you heard there at the end was edward chang professor at uc riverside and a member of the black korean alliance and in fact things did get worse right i mean this these problems continued all all the way up until the outbreak of the of the sort of riots proper
2: absolutely yeah you know after the latasha harlan shooting there was still instances there was a, a another example that summer of a korean shopkeeper killing a client you know he Accused of trying to rob him, um, and there would know, all these other little skirmishes. And over that summer, a bunch of people, a bunch of those Korean stores, even before the riots or the unrest, a year later, there was you know uh, a, a few stores had been firebombed. The mayor of L.A., Tom Bradley, had to intercede in August and try to ask for people to settle down and calm tensions. You know, sort of a you know a, a, of a prelude of what was to come. But at that time, it felt really. Like, we were on the precipice of something really bad happening already, like, that, the summer before April 29th, 1992, when the riots officially started. So, yeah, that you know, the Latasha Harlins thing was sort of like, you know, I guess it sort of lit the fuse of all the other explosions to come later.
3: Yeah. It's wild to read back newspaper accounts of the in, in the 1980s. Like, there was one in the Washington Post, you know, big feature all about these tensions and all these people mentioning Watts and worrying about what would happen. And then of course, some years later that happens. We're talking about the police beating of Rodney King, Los Angeles in the early 1990s, and the un- civil unrest, the LA riots. We're here with Landerson, host of this season's Slow Burn podcast. And we do want to hear from you. What are your memories of that spring in California? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. Has your perspective on the L.A. riots changed since that time? 866 6786 Get in touch on Twitter, Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Joel Anderson, host of this season of Slate Slow Burn podcast, which is about the L.A. riots. Of course, you've also heard Joel and I calling it the riots, calling it unrest, calling it, people call it uprising. And I want to know, Joel, like, how did you think about what to call this? Because like 1960s, you know, civil unrest the uprisings, you know, there were there were these things, and basically everywhere that Black people lived in America in the late 1960s. And there's a book called The Great Uprising, which tries to sort of show how they were connected political movement, essentially. How do you do? You, do you think that the 1992 events have undergone that same process, or do you think these are still primarily seen um, in in other terms?
2: I think we're in the midst of rethinking uh, the way we think we think about that at the time. So, I mean, that's a conversation we had internally even before we launched this season, like what do we wanna call this? I mean, are we okay calling it a riot? Um, because that's not, that's not really the term that a lot of people that work in the social justice and police reform spaces use anymore. But I mean, riots were the nomenclature of the day. Like that's what we called them. And that was just easier to be honest. But uh, I think that if you listen, um, to the season, and I think there's even a few you know, bonus episodes where we talk about like going through that conversation and having that debate about what do we want to call it? How do we want to refer to it? Um, because there isn't, there's still a debate. Like, it's not like you know, the social justice, social justice folks uh, and police reform advocates have won that debate, right. There's still a lot of people that refer to these uprisings all around the country as riots. But um, I think that more and more people are seeing it. Oh, like maybe this is actually a civil unrest. Maybe this is uprising. It's not just the destruction of a community. It's um, people begging to be heard and saying, well, if the law doesn't apply to us, um, if we're not protected under the law, if we're not protected by the justice system, then what, what do we have to lose? Um, uh, and so, yeah, so like I think that that complicates the idea of a riot, which just seems sort of like mindless violence, which is not what was going on in almost any of these circumstances. Yeah.
3: And, you know, I mean, I guess there's always the complexity of history that there could be both things happening for different people yeah. at the same time. You know, at, sure. at, uh, um, let's uh, bring in caller Scott. Welcome to the show. Scott from our team. Yeah, hi.
4: Uh, hi, I appreciate it. Um, I'm wondering if your guest, Mr. Anderson, um, was able to um, to t- to talk to any of the jurors or get or, or mm. get in, find out from any of the jurors like what on earth they were all thinking when they, you know, made that horrible acquittal. Yeah.
3: Hey, thank you for that, Scott. And why don't you, Joe, why don't you take this as an opportunity to kind of set up the trial for us a little bit, too, and then you can talk about how you reported it.
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I want—I don't want to pretend that like that's finished. Uh, we're still in, you know, the season is still ongoing. We're still working on it. But um, if if there are any jurors that are listening, uh, you know, or, or can hear me, I still would love to talk to you. Um, and so, please reach out to me. But so, no, no, as of yet, we have not spoken with any jurors. But we've uh, talked a lot of people that were involved uh, in that trial, including you know, defense attorneys, prosecutors. Um, <clears throat> you know, that, that sort of thing. So we're still trying to figure that out. But yeah, I mean, the trial um, gets started. Uh, I, mean, with, I mean, so actually, let me just start at the beginning. So there's a lot of pretrial motions that go on throughout 1991. Like they uh, remove the original judge and then uh, they move the trial out of Los Angeles County to adjacent Ventura County, which if people are familiar with that part, of Southern California, they know that it is not quite as diverse um, as, you know, downtown Los Angeles where you would probably have a little bit more of a diverse pool, a jury pool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one of those factors that, you know, are sort of underplayed in history. Like we don't, you know, Simi Valley like meant something in 1991 and 1992 mm-hmm. that, it, that people have sort of forgotten about today. Um, but it really was like code back then, um, if you wanted to talk about, you know, a, a, an enclave of like white flight or um, okay. a place that was hostile to black and brown people. So um, that was sort of the, the, the lay of the land as we're going into the trial that gets started in February um, with jury selection. And so, yeah, we're right there. I mean, that's like, that's one of the things we're working on right now um and i I don't want to give too much away because there's still a lot to (laughs) do there's still a lot to listen to but um i I will say that like going through the trial and revisiting it like as a kid like court is boring right you just why would i sit and look at you know court proceedings all day on tv but um revisiting a lot of the stuff you just realize like how how you know how how easy things could have gone in another direction how how none of this had to happen, but Mm -hmm. for, you know, the decisions of a few people that people have mostly forgotten about today.
3: Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the others was the judge in, we were talking about Mm -hmm. Latasha Harlins earlier. Um, Soon-Jadu was in fact uh, convicted, but then the judge gave her only probation. Right. So, I mean, that's, that was one of those other moments where you're just like a single person, made a decision that that had this uh, huge impact. Um, let's bring in uh, caller uh, Nabil from uh, Menlo Park. Welcome to the show.
6: Hi, the, Nabil, actually. It's, oh, Nabil, my apologies. Now. My apologies. Yes, no worries. Actually, I wanted just to shed some light. I'm, I was at the time still in Beirut, Lebanon, and um, we saw when it happened, I think we did not, Uh, learned the news through TV. But then when the riots happened in 1992, this is where they played the video again and then gave Mm -hmm. the background of what was happening. And to me, it was a shocker. You know, it's uh, seeing America through the lens of the media. You always think it's the beacon of democracy and everything is Mm hunky-dory. And just to come to the realization to see a black man being beaten and they are taking turn on him and they go take a rest and then come back and beat him again. It was a big shocker. Fast oh, yeah. forward though after 1995 I <clears throat> went to grad school at Cornell. It happened to be two years later in 1997 I think there was the play Twilight Los Angeles 1992 and <clears throat> I went to watch it and it brought those heavy and emotional memories back. Mm. So I, I just want to shed light as from an international perspective. Yeah. What uh, what the video of uh, Rodney King uh, kind of the emotions that it imparted on someone who looked at America from the outside?
2: Uh, Nabil, thank you so much for that. Yeah, Nabil, that's great. And, and Alexa, can I can I just yeah. say something about that? Yeah, because I, absolutely. Actually, I, I can't I can't like obviously I'm not from Beirut, I'm not from Lebanon, but um, you know, 1991 was a different time, like. L.A. didn't look like that. You know what I mean? Like L.A. looked like a totally different place to me, too. Um, you know, the world was a lot more di- dispersed. You know, We just didn't have right. the same sort of like connectivity that to, to then that we have today. And so I'm looking at L.A. like it's a foreign country, too. Um, watching all this chaos and unrest and, you know, injustice, you know, in a manner of speaking, you know, thinking that, oh, man, like that doesn't seem like the America I know. So even for me, like somebody that grew up, in Houston, Texas, I'm looking at that and I'm like, oh, that doesn't look like what people say America is either. So I can only imagine like the dissonance you have um, looking at that from outside of the country too. Um,
3: well, and, you know, just to share with you too, be like from my perspective, I was in LA. Uh, I was 10 yeah. years old. We talked about this. That's yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah. I was 10, I was ten years old. Uh, my dad was actually uh, in South America somewhere. Um, and so I was there with, with just my mom and my sister and we got picked. They, they like Closed down school early. This was during uh, when the when the unrest itself jumped off. It was wild. I mean, there were you turn on the radio and people are like, "There's snipers on the freeway." When we went to the yeah. grocery store, everyone was in there. It was like supermarket sweep. If anybody remembers that game, people were just <laughs> tossing stuff into their into their carts. You know, toilet paper, water. I mean, we're now familiar with these kinds of shortages, but I've never seen anything <laughs> like that in my life. And we all just went like running for our cars. Then we're just holed up. You know, we lived in Silmar, uh, which at mm-hmm. the time was kind of transitioning from being a mostly white area to a mostly Mexican area. And mm-hmm. um, and it was just, all we did was watch the TV. All we did was yeah. use just live coverage 24-7. It was the, the first kind of 24-7 media event that, that I knew, aside from maybe the Gulf War, a little bit of that like Wolf Blitzer with like tracer fire mm-hmm. behind him. And, <laughs> and as 10-year-old me, I just sat there with a notebook. Um, just like drawing weapons. I still don't exactly oh, know wow. even what really? I was doing. I was just drawing. I just sat there like drawing like knives uh, and guns. And I never wow, did that. I never, it, it, it was just it's like honestly one of the clearest memories um, that I have of being a child was those wow. days watching those different loops, watching Reginald Denny, the white truck driver who was beat and yeah. then saved by a black truck driver. Um, just just watching it all go down. It's, um, it so must I, have felt like the end of
2: the world. I guess.
3: It, it, you right. know, it was a little slice of 2020. Uh, just like moved <laughs> back in time into 1992. Yeah. Like it just kind of felt like, wow, what's yeah. what's going on? And also, I mean, the injustice of what had happened was also so clear. Like no one around right. me was saying like, oh, yeah, those cops did the right thing. Every, you know, right. like, I mean, everybody was like, wait, what, what was this miscarriage of justice? So, um, yeah, I think everybody was so deeply affected by by that you know all across the world is really what we're hearing
2: yeah no i mean that's i mean that's that's sort of surreal to think about somebody like i mean <laughs> And again, I don't, you know, I'm I'm not going to pretend like I know a lot about geopolitics or anything, but like in the 1980s, like you you hear about Beirut, Lebanon, that meant something different like back then, like that meant like, you know, sort of like a breakdown, um, Mm -hmm. like a place that just seemed like it was constantly in the news for not good things uh, happening there. And for somebody to say... At that time, I'm in Beirut and I'm looking at America and I'm like, what the hell is going over there? Yeah, right. I guess it's sort of surreal to hear somebody say that. Yeah,
3: totally. We got another uh, memory from Kelly. Um, Kelly writes, I was 25 and living an hour away in Orange County. My roommates and I were in shock and glued to the TV news. My boss organized a food brigade with donated food and a group of us who volunteered for the trip. We all piled into a 40-foot no-window trailer and made the drive to South Central L.A., where we set up a food station at the police and fire department's temporary HQ. I remember being terribly conflicted about the outside perception of feeding an organization that was being vilified, yet I knew their presence was key to protecting the community. If the events had happened today, I wonder if I would have done that, knowing how pervasive racism is within police departments. This event was a major turning point in my life, and was the impetus for staying so involved in global and community activism. It's unreal that we have become numb to these types of events happening with such frequency and consistency today, and still to the same community.
4: Wow.
2: Man. I mean, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I, I yeah, I would like. I would like to know if if she would ever. know do that again if given the opportunity right um because again this is not a settled debate there are a lot of people that think that um what the police do even even in the build up to the to the to the unrest that came like the the sort of aggressive policing i mean we're hearing that debate even right now in the bay area like people are like oh i want more police to do these things for us to create order Right. um, And so there are a lot of people that agree with that sort of policing, that aggressive policing and cleaning up the streets and, you know, making things, you know, making things safe for people. Right. Um, So, yeah, I would I would love to know if she would she would do it again. Yeah, that's so interesting.
3: Um, I do. I, I want to bring us back to uh, here at the end to Glenn, to Rodney King, mm-hmm. known known as Glenn, to his his family. um, And I, I want to play uh, a clip you have, which is just extremely powerful clip. Um, You were able to talk with some of his relatives, um, including Antresha Averett, right? Mm -hmm. Averett, Uh, yeah, Antresha Averett. Averett, uh Antresha Averett, apologies. Mm Why don't we, I, I just want people to hear one of his family members describing what this period was like for Rodney King.
0: He was never enough for anyone at that moment in time. He found himself where he could not meet the standards of anyone. So he, he just took these blows. It just never stopped.
3: I mean, you, you, you hear the yeah. emotion in her voice. It's a it's, um, it's tough tape to listen to. I, I, I mean, when she says that, who's she thinking about in that? Who, whose expectations is Rodney King not meeting here?
2: I mean, man, it's pretty. I mean, we, I mean, we can start with his own attorneys who were frustrated with him for not being able to stay out of trouble. I mean, one thing about it is that Rodney King, um, you know, was addicted to alcohol. He was an alcoholic, just like his father. His father died very early um, because of complications related to alcoholism. And so Rodney is like having difficulty getting right. Right. The, the prosecutors in the case, he's the victim. They need him to be sort of unassailable, like uh, the perfect victim um, that like, you know, that, to explain, like, why would the police do something like this to somebody? Right. Like you don't want to have somebody on the witness stand and to introduce somebody in the court that, you know, that is less than a perfect victim. That makes it's just the reality of the situation. And Rodney King was not that. He had a criminal record. Um, you know, he had done some things in his life. He had spent that night and had, you know, he is the one that got the pursuit started that evening. And then you have like his family that is sort of going through these things like Rodney after the beating is very unpredictable, very moody, very angry, understandably so, right? I mean, I don't, maybe people didn't quite have the understanding of what had happened to him at that time, but like he's unpredictable and angry and uh, just sort of struggling to get on his feet. And then you've got people in the community That really wanted him to speak up and say what the LAPD did to me was wrong, Um, that this was a racist, violent act and they should pay. And Rodney King was just not that dude. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, He grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household where, you know, they don't necessarily believe in political action. And so his mother was like, I don't want you to say anything. Stay out of that. Let's just make our case. And so, for whatever reason, Rodney King stayed silent, and that really upset people in the community that were kind of counting on him to lead efforts on police reform and things like that. And he just could not do it. So ultimately, at the end of the day, he was just not the guy that people wanted him to be.
3: Yeah. Let's bring in one last caller, uh, Tweed from Bakersfield. Welcome to the show.
5: Uh, actually, I'm my numbers from Bakersfield, but I presently live in Santa Rosa, California. Oh, okay, Tweed, Santa Rosa. Apologies. Yes, sir. I'm a 61-year-old black man that grew up in South Central L.A. I, too, was Rodney King on several occasions growing up as a youth. The police have always been kind of not really apprehensive on approaching you. They just act, and then you have to deal with the consequences. And I've never been a criminal. It was never been on any crime-related. Just see some black kids coming from the movies. Next thing you know, we're slammed on the police car. It's been things of that nature. I vividly remember the riots. Uh, at the time, I was a major recording artist. And I uh, mm. had to sit there and watch it on TV. And to this day, it still affects me because I'm petrified of the police. Mm. I always have been my whole life. Because when you grew up in South Central, in that environment, it was bad enough. We had to worry about the gangs and, and, and the crack epidemic. Now we have to fear the police as well. So, man, to this day, if the police pull by me on a traffic stop, I am scared to death. So I do understand the repercussions. I'm 61 years of age now, and why should a black man in America be afraid of anything or anyone? And I, I'm scared to death of them. Yeah.
3: Hey, yeah. Tweed, well, thank you for that. Go ahead, Joel.
2: Yeah, no, Tweed, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And I just drew quick to make it you know, personal because and another thing that made me really want to do this is that I don't have the experience that Rodney King had, certainly. And not even what Tweed had. Like, I've not been physically abused by the police, but one thing that occurred to me as I was working on this and building up to it, you know, I'm from Houston, Texas. I've been pulled over by police as, just as a motorist, like 30, 35 times. And when I tell people that, when I tell people that they you know, either they don't believe me or they're just sort of, you know, shocked. And that's sort of the life you live with, you know, as a black man in America, like you just sort of get used to them as the opposition. Um, and so that was one of the things that sort of yeah. made me want to do this season as well.
3: We've been talking about the police beating of Rodney King and the subsequent uprising riots in LA with Joel Anderson, host of this season of Slate Slow Burn podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel.
2: Alexis, my pleasure, man. It's always a good time.
3: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead of Forum with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.